Welcome. I hope you enjoy the conversation you're about to see between me and another comedian about religion and comedy. These are conversations I'm calling Disorganized Religion. God bless. And for those atheists out there, may nothing await you after this life. Hey, nerds. Welcome to another episode of Disorganized Religion. I'm your host, Seth Lawrence, as always. Uh, And this week, I have the fantastic and delightful David Centofanti with me. Wonderful comedian. I don't even remember where I met him. I'm pretty sure it was in the back of Sal's, right? Sal's Comedy Hole. (laughs) Uh, How long had you been doing comedy when we met? Um... Let's see, sells. What was that? Was that 2018 or 2019? <laughs> uh, I would say about two years. I was two years. Yeah, ago. 17, 18. I think it was late 17 when we met. Okay, so yeah, at that yeah. point, I was doing it for about a year. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me. How long were you doing it by that point? Uh trying to think a little I think around a year as well perhaps a little less because I started kind of beginning of 2017. That's impressive because like you were already like you were hosting you were setting stuff up. Uh, I was thank you. You you didn't waste a second like I know I I, a lot of time in the beginning being lazy. Ah sure I try to insert myself places I'm not wanted until they kick me out. I'm gonna save that for one of the Mormon questions. (laughs) <laughs> that, that you guys insert yourselves in places you're not no, that's it baby the, the the attack plan is insert infiltrate dominate that's it dude if it works <laughs> <laughs> david talk to us about your comedy man uh so you started in what late 2016 then uh what what got you started in stand-up uh well it's since the beginning, like high school, I was always wanting to be a stand-up comedian, but uh, I didn't really have like that support system. Uh, whenever I would bring it up to friends, they would so, uh, be like, you're, yeah, insane. you're out of your mind. You think you're going to be a stand-up comedian? And I kind of let that get to me. So uh, I always wanted to do this. And at that point in 2016, I was uh, it's kind of at that ends road where I was like, I got to do this or it's never going to happen. Gotcha. What, what made you feel that, like, if I don't do it now, because I didn't even start till I was like 31, you know? So what, made, what gave you this feeling of, if I don't do it now, I never will do it? I was just graduating from uh, college with a nursing degree. And Beautiful. I yeah. just uh, spent the last year taking care of my grandfather and watching him pass on. And... Jeez. It just, uh, it was like seeing, like, this is going to be my career. This is what I am now. This is who I am. And that's the inevitable end. You know, like, no one gets out of this life alive. So it's like, why waste a second longer? I mean, yeah, I was making decent money, but, like, not happy. Definitely not happy. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So, So for nursing, were you, like, a hospice? nurse or what what kind of nursing were you looking into doing uh for my grandfather i guess you could say i was a hospice nurse uh, mm-hmm. but uh, i was looking more in the long lines of emergency i like to the fast pace um the last floor i was on before i uh called it was oncology 
So I was dealing oh, with gosh. patients. Uh, there was one weekend where three patients were diagnosed and uh, it just deal like it was, it was remarkable to see like how they all dealt with it because yeah. it gave me us, you know, kind of like strength in uh, just being there for them. But, yeah, 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 yeah. I was so at that time and I was not strong enough mentally to be like, you know how they say, don't bring your work home with you. I yeah. brought every day home at the hospital with me. I was yeah. not strong enough to be a nurse. Yeah. That would be so tough though. So, so what floors did you work? Oncology does seem like one of the worst. I mean, especially with, with kids, like I have two kids with a bleeding disorder. So we go to hematology oncology clinics. It's like we're there with oncology patients, often kids, and it is really tough just even going, like visiting, essentially. Yeah, I, we, uh, my cousin passed away from hemophilia, so my family mm. uh, is no stranger to uh, blood disorders, but yeah. when I was, I, did, uh, I didn't work at Children's Hospital but I did an eight week rotation there when I was in nursing school. And okay. uh, that was every day in the parking garage before going in, you kind of have to have like a pet talk with yourself because you, yeah. children, you see them in vulnerable states and it's, it's extremely unfair. It's unsettling. Um, but it's also remarkable at how powerful children are. Like they, yeah. they show you strength. In, yeah in places where you had no idea humans, especially adults, were capable of. And yeah, man, I'm sorry that you have that going on in your family, but like you, I know you personally and I know like there's, um, you're, you're strong, man. Like I, I, I'm happy that, <laughs> I, I wish it would never happen to any kids, but like right. the fact that your kids got you as a father to deal with <laughs> it, like that warms me because I know you've got that, uh, that caring that's... umbrella. So. Yeah, that's very sweet. People might not get that from my comedic persona, but I try to be uh... so different on stage than you are off stage. Like, not a lot of comedians <laughs> are like you. Like, that's who they are when they get up there. You are like yeah. when I first saw your material, it blew me away because I was like, "This dude is doing these jokes." <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of wish everyone in my audience could get to know me before or after a show. Because sometimes I worry that I scare too many people. I just terrify them. Uh, but that's sweet of you to say, David. You're so nice. That's the thing that I love about you. It's just how kind you are. There are not that many truly kind people, I feel like. And you are one of those. You have a gift. You have a gift for kindness. I don't know if it's a gift. I just am very, uh, I mean, it's... I want love. So I know it comes from a needy place, you know, but at uh -huh. the end of the day, you can't go into it with like, Oh, I hope if I'm nice to them, they're nice to me. Yeah. You gotta treat people decently. And like, yeah, it's, it's hard out there, man. And especially like right now with all the we're going through, I just try I to uh, try to extend that heart, you know, <laughs> just make yeah. sure people are like, look them in the eye, like ask them how they're doing. It's really, it's really easy to be nice. Like I, it's hard yeah. to be present, but it's really easy to be nice. Man, see, and that's, that's why it's a gift for you. Because when it comes easy, it's a gift. That's the way I feel about it. But 
I commend you. I commend you for being the way that you are. It's, uh, it is very refreshing. Is that partly why you think you went into nursing? This idea of like giving love, just being nice. I, I hate to see people in pain, man. Mm. I probably went into nursing with too big of an ego. Like I was going to cure people and heal them. Oh, okay. Like, like Jesus, you know, like, sure. Sure. Girl, I grew up around a lot of sadness too. Like I said, like that cousin I lost to hemophilia yeah. child. So I grew up a lot of around a lot of sad aunts and uncles. Yeah. A lot of grandparents who were holding the burden of losing him. And I think that wired me to be mm. like, I gotta help these people out. I gotta bring them a little bit of joy. You know, I would mm. sing dance or try to make them laugh even as a kid. And Yeah. You know, just like I remember like holding and massaging my grandmother's hands when she had cancer. I don't know what it is, man. I just like, hmm. kids, kids were outside playing and I'd be inside listening to my, my family talk. Like, yeah, I don't know. I just went with it. Yeah. It's weird to reflect. Yeah. I don't know why I'm I, reflecting. That's interesting. On weird, but. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, uh, but you know, that's what we're here to do. We're here to reflect on David Centifanti, figure out, what makes you tick, you know? Uh, man, I mean, that's so, okay. There are a couple of things that you've said that I really want to hit on. The, the first is I, I don't want this to come across as a tongue-in-cheek question, like mean-spirited, but why nurse as opposed to doctor? If you're no, trying to a- like heal people, I would have thought like, oh, well then, you know, go be a doctor. But nurse, you typically have a lot more interaction with people you know patients you're spending more time with them so well, i just don't the know one thing is the yeah pe- the, the, the one-on-one time you know you actually get to be with them but no it's like you know how some kids their parents raise them like you're going to be a doctor yeah like you can't be anything else my parents were like you're gonna be a nurse this is your <laughs> interesting so no, they, no, they, actually, uh, they, they wanted me to stay with uh music my oh, okay my, my mom i was going into nursing he was it was like the opposite she was like no like stay with the art like don't leave singing like she put all the time into it and i was yeah just like oh, it's just like jumping and jumping and because i was just avoiding what i actually wanted to be and do which was speech and stand-up comedy gotcha gotcha but, uh, so no, i hadn't thought about being a doctor because i have a i have a couple well, there's a doctor in my fantasy football league okay and, was going to nursing school and when he realized how much of the education was similar he switched to being a doctor and uh-huh. he's a well-off doctor so he kind of was kind of pushing me yeah, in like, way he was like you should just become a doctor yeah. and uh, yeah i don't know what i was telling myself like nurses are more of a hero like mm. i'll take a pay cut whatever but yeah yeah interesting so, uh, and, and that's the other thing about your, you've, you've done some jokes about, you know, your operatic history. Uh, how did you get into that? I mean, had you been doing that young? That was uh, totally by accident. The it's, opera? It's, it shouldn't even have like been a thing I found out in my life. <laughs> I was, I was wanting to do journalism in high school and the okay. council was like, you're not smart enough to be in journalism. Oh my so gosh, who are they? 
And okay. I stopped at choir. I was horrible. I couldn't hold a pitch for my life. So uh -huh. around uh, junior year, all my friends were in the highest choir, and I was in still the middle choir. Okay. So I'd go in the practice rooms and just try to teach myself how to sight read and how to, like, get my pitch. It yeah. was the same week Pavarotti died. I was in the okay. practice room, and I was like, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fat Italian. I'm going to see if I can do what he did. Like, it was like, you know how, you, like, young kids watch Michael play basketball? And they were yeah. like, I should be able to do that. Like, sure. I had witnessed someone who looked like me do something remarkable until I saw Pavarotti. Right. And I just in the practice room and just listening to him and just mimicking his, like, tonalities and his, his like, our pet, like, just everything. I was just mimicking him. So I yeah. think I learned with that was just copying Pavarotti. Huh. Whatever he does, just mimic it with your tool. And I got lucky and I figured that out and it became a big part of my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what is the opera world like for someone who's kind of breaking into that scene? It is, I would imagine it's music classes or music lessons, mm -hmm. singing lessons. And then are you it's, on like, uh, is there like an amateur circuit or something that you're going in? The amateur circuit is very much like the colleges, the great okay. colleges. You know, you have Eastman School of Music. You have, I mean, you have a, there's a ton of amazing music schools now in America because of the explosion of millennials going into arts. Mm -hmm. So all these art programs across the country and colleges got a lot of funding. So mm. you can find a lot of great musicians from all over the States. But uh, mostly, you know, you want to go East New York is a lot of the people function and get into the main circuit got it so how far into that world did you did you go uh i didn't get too far into it like i i did a couple uh like chorus performances at uh carnegie hall for uh eric whitaker opera but uh -huh. it wasn't like a extremely long performance or anything like notable um sure i kind of threw a towel on that one because i was just not into learning 400 year old german music and <laughs> italian uh -huh. arias i got a little yeah, yeah, yeah i lost the love so i got very lazy with it got it yeah yeah kind of a neat thing you found out about yourself but not a true passion yeah <laughs> yeah fair that's fair okay so then we kind of fast forward to you with your grandpa at this uh almost crisis moment you feel like for your future of like well i could keep doing this or I could do what I feel like is really calling me, which is stand up. So, so what was your first like open mic experience? Where did you go? What happened? <laughs> you know, you know how you're supposed to like go check it out. Like go, you know, how everyone gives the advice to like to new people. Like, go look at an open mic. Go yeah. watch. Yeah, just go you'll see. see. Right. Bomb, and you'll know you can do it. <laughs> right. I invited all my friends from high school, <laughs> all the people who doubted me originally. Who were oh, like, no. I yeah. invited them, and uh, it was in this bar in Rochester, Michigan. Okay. Noisy as all get out, and just horrible. I couldn't yeah. remember my joke setups, so I'm just stumbling and trying to find the words. And the dude who was hosting comes up on stage with me he's like this big he's like double my size this big black guy he just yeah. puts his arm around he's just like breathe and Aww. i was just like so just like all my friends have their heads down <laughs> in the booth in the back. 
it was the worst. So, and a lot of them haven't seen like me perform since then. So oh, I think gosh. they're just all like, yeah, David's out in LA throwing away his life, which is, <laughs> which is kind of true. But uh, well, to an extent, I mean, I, it, it was not, oh, I should not have invited people, man. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a ballsy move inviting a whole bunch of people. I mean, especially high school friends, man. That's crazy confident. That's amazing. So that was what, when I was like 20 and I didn't do it again for five years after that. Cause it was wow, so, cause it was so devastating. <laughs> Holy smokes. So how much time did they give you up on stage at that first open mic? Oh, that was probably like three minutes and I didn't even okay. probably get 60 seconds into it. <laughs> Is that right? You were just like, was, yeah. yeah, I was so, a word. I was just standing up there holding a the mic. <laughs> oh man. That's so rough. Yeah, that stage fright. Was it stage fright that hit you? Was it like, all of these people have doubt, like, did the crowd, affect, like the people you brought, did they affect you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. you kind of dug yourself yeah, a little bit. <laughs> that's, that's good. Cause I, I don't know. It's like, I wouldn't want it any other way. I like that, uh, that failure. I don't know. <laughs> Failure's always fueled me. Yeah. Well, that's good. Myself. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, next time they see me, it's going to be better than that. <laughs> right. Right. I was just talking to you. So I, like I'm, I'm in Vegas right now with a comedy competition, which are always like, they're good for networking, but I don't feel like they're a really great measure of how funny you are. They find someone that they want to market, which is great, but it's not necessarily like who's the funniest here kind of competition, you know? Uh, but I was talking to somebody else who, there was one of these shows last night that just, it was after the competition, kind of a fun show for, for the people who had already performed to kind of let off some steam. The crowd was small. It's COVID spaced out, but even that, you know, it was still small. And uh, man, the show got off the rails. And I was talking to some of the people afterward and then all of them were like, you know, it's fine to bomb, but like you want to go up again and, and in front of the same people. And be like, I'm, I'm, I can prove to you that I'm funny. I will do this. I want to do it again. Uh, I, I think we have to have a little bit of failure in our lives to really learn what's going on, you know? That failure, it, uh, I don't know about you, but after a bomb, I need to get back up on stage and do well. Yeah, yes. Like it, it's... It's like a drug, you know? It's like you get a bad batch and you're like, I got to get <laughs> stuff before I, I... I can only imagine what you're talking about and relate to it in a sympathetic level. <laughs> you know when you go up into the Eucharist is like grape juice and not actually wine? It's like... I mean, again, I have to... We, we use water. We use water for our sacrament. So, really? That's actually yeah. intelligent. That makes actually I mean, a lot of sense. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Am I going to become uh, a Mormon after this? <laughs> you should. That's the whole goal with this podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, so my gosh. Yeah. Uh, no, I performed. I have performed in Vegas before. It was in connection with the same competition. They did satellites. So I was here in February, did a show. It went fine. I did not advance. It was not one of my best performances. So I'm excited to kind of be back in front of what I will pretend is the exact same crowd to prove to them that I can be funnier than I was before. Uh, but I, I perform on Friday. So uh, I'm up 
we're recording this Thursday, so I'm up tomorrow, but anyhow. Uh, yeah, okay. So I, I want to ask you, like, how, how have you felt about your comedic voice? Like, do you feel like you've found it yet? You've been in it for, you know, three-ish years now. Um, do you feel like you're getting there or where are you on your kind of comedic persona journey? I feel like I finally found the roots of my voice pre-COVID. I was very oh, yeah. like January and February were really good months for my writing in like my material communication to people. Yeah. Uh, I went back and watched a lot of my videos before that. And uh, it was like, just, you know, like the self-deprecating jokes work, the fat jokes sure. work, the yeah. opera jokes work, you know, but all of them are like really heavy crutches where it's like, yeah, they're going to work because they're tried and true to something that is tried and true. Like, yeah, I'm fat. Yeah, I can <laughs> sing opera. So, right. Congrats, you found those jokes. But I wasn't ever, like, I would never watch my videos or my tapes and laugh at my, or not even laugh, but, like, feel like, oh, this is true comedy. This is, mm -hmm. I found it. And finally being, like, more vulnerable and mm -hmm. um, being more open and not being afraid to share parts of myself instead of leaning on, like, a, a fat joke that, tears me down I build myself up and use just my existence to get the humor because it's like I I've had a very hilarious life in terms of like the pain I've experienced and it's like <laughs> yeah I, I'm very fortunate that I'm still here and get to talk about it so to to go up there and just do like fat jokes or talk about you know like farts or just like stuff that's so shallow it was yeah. nice to get past that because I spent, I spent a lot of time on stage talking about really dark, sad stuff. And not that it's a detriment, but I definitely think it's going to be a hurdle to overcome because a lot of people who have seen me perform, their perception of me is not a good one. It's not a positive one. It's like, oh, here's mm. David. He's probably going to talk about suicide. And it's like, <laughs> you know, yeah, those jokes maybe would hit once in a while, but that's not who I am fully. It's just right. something talked about on stage because it was something I was dealing with. And that's a whole right. other issue. Right. Separating what you're working through to like what you actually want to convey to people. And I feel like I'm very lucky to have three and a half, four years in kind of locked in on what yeah. I want to share with the world. Yeah. So as far as like advice for other people that are around our stage, kind of still figuring that out, what, what advice do you give them? Trust your history. Hmm. Like those moments where like you were pushed down or kicked around or like life kind of just kept like, you know, when you're standing up and you just fall back down, like, all those moments, like, share those. Don't try to be funny. Just mm -hmm. share yourself. If, cause, and then you'll actually find out if you're actually truly, like, someone that, like, the human species, like, wants to look at on stage and share <laughs> themselves with. You know, like, we're very tribalistic, and it's like, yeah. 
dude that wasn't funny probably wasn't allowed to speak in the cave at night, you know, around the fire. You know, uh-huh. and hopefully he learned that role. I mean, maybe his yeah. role was being a hunter. You know, sure. but the dude who, like, got the cave to laugh and warm themselves up, like, yeah. that's that was a learned trait that kept him surviving. So to find that, you've got to, like, fully share yourself. And yeah. if you share yourself, you'll know what's true. I, it took me a long time to find that, though. So if you can, like, trust, like, your true self and share your true self, you'll get there a lot faster. Yeah. So, so why, I guess, what prevent, did you feel like you were avoiding your true self or was it more a, uh, I want to be funny in a different way or what, what motivated kind of your comedic choices up until you decided I need to be this or I want to be this? It's interesting because, um, I guess you kind of do do that. Maybe it's not consciously, but I like a lot of the times I would feel like I was just throwing stuff out there to get yeah. the laugh. Yeah. Instead of this is the comedy of me. Yeah. Right. Right. This is what so I prepared I for you. A little bit of yeah. both. Yeah. And do you do most of your writing off stage, or do you do some mm-hmm. both on and off? Off stage, yeah. Off stage. I definitely come up with the materials, and I got notebooks all over my room that are just filled with probably just senseless hours of jokes. But how many of them actually will get tried on stage is another thing. Right. I, sure. Right on stage, I try to come fully prepared, and then yeah. Uh, Luckily, there'll be a synapse that fires, and I'll think of something spontaneously on stage. Yeah. And nine times out of ten, that spontaneous fire always gets laughs. Right. Because of the human element, I think the audience listening can sense that it was also spontaneous. Uh So they enjoy that or found that with you. Yeah. Yeah. I I do think it's. uh, Yeah, I, I operate very similarly and I think it's interesting that as stand-ups we're trying to I don't know I guess in my process or this process that we both tend to follow is the spontaneity that we find on stage getting a laugh is what we try to create unspontaneously in the future to appear spontaneous every time right which is so hard to recreate yeah (laughs) It's like Chase of the Dragon. It's just how, <laughs> how, I should use all these references for you. But, but no, it's, uh, yeah, that's the beauty, though. It's art form. Like, it's not just saying words. It's trying to perfect that connection, tonality, yeah. and yeah. So, so there's, there's another thing I want to come back to, and you kind of talked about this with some of the pain, you know, that, that you've endured in your life, this, the, the lack of support system. Most people, I think, who are even somewhat into stand-up would believe that the lack of support system, the painful history, that those are necessary for a stand-up. And, and lack of support, I don't mean like you had no family with you. I just mean people that were like not encouraging you to be a stand-up, that's almost a prerequisite to be a stand-up. Right? So I think in all walks. 
<laughs> so, yeah. Has your support system changed? Do you feel like you've, uh, I mean, I don't know if there's anyone from your family that has seen you perform that like has changed their opinion on it or, or how, how has that evolved for you over these last few years? Um, well, like with the music, uh, I would, I got, everyone supported me to move out to LA, even though I probably wasn't ready comedically to hit the mm. LA circuit, probably could have done some time in the Michigan circuit, but I, uh, I get mad support to work hard and put stuff out from my mother, my brother, like they're all just trying to push me to like work harder at this and like get my stuff out there and not like, I'm yeah. very lucky in that regards. But in terms oh, of that's what, great. I think, you know, how you said it's like a prerequisite for being a good comedian is like having that doubt. Yes, to an extent, but like if you got people that are like doubting you on wanting to do something that like is going to make you happy, it's like stop listening to those people. <laughs> you got to do what makes you happy, even if you fail at it, because it's like you can always return to whatever yeah. you do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I do have this struggle within myself seeing how competitive the LA market is, just how many people want to do stand up. Where I think it might be better if some of them did listen, though, because then they wouldn't clog up the pipeline, you know, just so selfishly. But, you know, we all evolve, we all change, we all get better. So uh, there was a point in my early years where I was clogging up the pipeline for some of these people <laughs> better than me at stand-up but you kind of just have to trust that you're going to break free and get flushed <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah i think <laughs> yeah i mean honestly the more i've thought about it the more it's like i do believe in the meritocracy aspect of of stand-up that those who are funny do get noticed and they do kind of rise in the ranks to where they, they should be, you know? Um, so I want to, I want to talk about uh, now religion because I, I mean, just the amount of pain that you have alluded to in, in your life leading you to stand up, how has that affected your relationship? If, if at all with a God. Heavily. <laughs> Heavily. Yeah. I, uh, it's sometimes like, I, I'm past this, but there was a point in my life where I was like, am I straight up in the book of Job? Like, am I, am, is this everything a test? Is everything just testing me to have faith in this universal being? Yeah. And I, once I got past that, that was, uh, that was a good step for my brain because uh, yeah. looking at God as, uh, a thing that was trying to test me in terms uh -huh. of him like his or like the faith in it instead it was uh like obstacles to grow like yeah these that are happening are to help you grow it's not about you having more faith in it it's about you having more faith in yourself that you can overcome yeah but it took uh, me that's... a long time to get to it. i've had a lot of different layers of what i view god as and what but, oh man, it's it's religion has always been a very uh, it's like a roller coaster, man. In my life, yeah. moved all yeah. over, the, but I've always had an open communication with whatever it may be. Sure, sure. I, I mean, I, I think that's 
Yeah. So, I mean, so, so beautifully put, um, how, I guess, what, what understanding of God did you have when you were, when you were a kid? Like, were you going to church? What, what kind of church were you going to, or were your parents just both kind of spiritual, religious, teaching you kind of what they had been brought up with? So, so my mother, my mother's mother, as far as we know, she was Jewish. And okay. the Holocaust, her, uh, they got their papers switched um, mm. so they could protect themselves before they escaped the Czechoslovakia. And uh, they got my great-grandfather, who I named after David, out of the concentration camp. But when she came to America, she, uh, she refused to have any religion in her life. So mm. when my mother was a child, my mom wanted to go to church, and I believe she went to a Lutheran church. My father was Catholic, um, firstborn of the Italian family in America. Uh, mm. He was considered in Italy, and they got over here so he could be a U.S. citizen. Wow. And uh, when my parents divorced, like one of my dad's, uh, he wanted my mom to raise us Catholic. So she agreed. Uh -huh. So she found a very progressive Catholic church that was in uh, near our hometown. And uh, yeah, I would go to a mass with uh, to my dad's Catholic church on the other side of town, which was a way more conservative Catholic church. And then mm -hmm. like the holidays and catechism and stuff I would do at the church by my mom's place. And that's okay. what um, So I was raised Catholic, uh, confirmed all that communion, my, my confirmed name is Joseph. Uh, uh -huh. My priest, Father Jerry, gave me the name Joseph because of, uh, the, you know, basically what the story of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat is based off of. Yeah, beautiful. Is, uh, that whole story, and he said, that's your energy. And he's like, and that's why I give you this name. And it was really cool to have, like, a priest that totally saw me. Like, he yeah. saw me as, like, the performer the eccentric like and he didn't inhibit that or anything like yeah. so that was really like i was fortunate to have that capital yeah yeah but i mean also it's interesting to me even in just the our conversation here that comparison because for for you know from my understanding of that story a huge aspect of that story is joseph's ability to forgive and be kind to his brothers who totally screw him over in the beginning. And it feels like this priest already knew this about you, that you were going to be a kind, loving, forgiving individual. I find that fascinating. Like I said, I got, I got very lucky to have Father Gary. Uh, he yeah. Was, he was one of a kind. He would, uh, he would fly to Vermont. This was back in the day when uh, gay marriage was still illegal across the states. And he mm -hmm. would marry Catholics. Uh, no kidding. To, he would marry Catholics so they could still be Catholics. Because there was a lot of gay community at that time that they were pushed out of the church. Yeah. And he was one of the few priests that was like, why are we pushing people out instead of accepting them? So that was, that was at a time, too, when you're a teenager, you're like, why are people not allowed to just love whoever they want? And then you have your leader yeah. of your church being like, oh, we're going to go against archdiocese a little bit here i, I yeah. appreciate that because you know when you go into a religion 
especially one as strict as Catholicism, you got to be able to have that bend or ability to question. And mm. uh, he gave that to us, which I don't think a lot of, when I talk to a lot of Catholics that are my age now, it's, it, it bums me out because they look back at their past or at least the religion that raised them a lot differently than I do. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more closed, a lot more punitive. Interesting. So do you still identify as Catholic or, or has your, has your religious identity changed? Yeah, I wouldn't label myself as a Catholic anymore. It's really hard to go to mass and listen mm. to these priests. And I just like, <laughs> Why? I can't get all the lady stuff and uh, the rote. Everyone's on, the, do the same thing every week. Yeah. It drives me crazy. I like variety. <laughs> Okay, I see. So you need some Im- improv in your in your church service. Well, I think religion is questions. I love yeah. asking questions. I, sure. I so often, I guess I would more label myself as agnostic, probably. Okay. Question the, the reality of our universe more than accepting that this is just like the one tried and true. Interesting. That is so, like my my uh, my college professor labeled himself as a non secular humanist, and I was I always <laughs> like the wording of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 how would you identify yourself now? Then, religiously, are you? I guess agnostic is what you said. So, what led you to agnostic from this pretty religious upbringing? I. Uh... I would say probably my my father used to say this one say uh, he would say I am not knowing he would, mm-hmm. he would say that specific phrasing like if he didn't have the answer to something or if he would if we were talking about like a big subject his response would always be I am not knowing hmm. and I was kind of like stuck in the back of my head where it's like what, is, what the hell does that mean and then when I got older and I learned about all the other religions and how important it was to educate yourself. I was like, oh, the I am not knowing is a driving force to keep educating yourself, keep asking questions. Um, mm-hmm. And I like to tell myself that there will never be an answer. Um, and that's comforting. Is that, at least for me in my brain, I... Uh, I feel like if you lock down into one absolute truth, isn't that a little bit of madness? Isn't that a little bit of craziness? Like, if it brings you peace, that's great. Yeah. But for me, one solid answer has never brought me peace. Hmm. So I, Interesting. I like the whole questioning aspect of religion. Is asking, yeah. Finding what fits your, uh, your puzzle. Yeah. Uh, interesting. So do you believe in an afterlife or, or no? Yeah, I do. Okay. So what kind of afterlife is there for, for a David Santafonte? What does that mean for you? I think it's, it's not like a permanent place. Okay. It's a, it's a beautiful in between and you kind of get a, a choice on how long you want to stay there. I don't think it's easy to stay in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Especially if you don't know yourself before you pass away. Mm. 
I think the afterlife is less like you know how they say you you go there to be judged. Mm-hmm. I think you go there to match up with who you really are, with what you achieved and learned about yourself. Hmm. And if you know yourself better, when you return, I know this is like it kind of it, it's a lot like uh, the Hindu belief of reincarnation. Yeah, is to believe when you die, your soul fragments or at least there's a split but if you truly like know yourself and understand your soul and what its purpose is and you've done everything you can to bring love to yourself and your family and your friends and those communities that surround you like i think you fragment less and when you re-return when you're reborn if you are reborn i don't know if any of this is true you know yeah Peace at night, uh, you come back as a stronger being. Hmm. So I, I think at the beginning of everything, there was one entity. It got bored and accidentally created another. Okay. And because it doubted itself, it kept fragmenting into all of this. Yeah. And the yeah. beautiful thing is that we are all one in it, and it is all one in us. But because mm-hmm. we're so far fragmented from the beginning, it sometimes feels like we're lost or not understanding where we are. And I think in the afterlife, what you slide into is the consciousness of that moment, that it's it remembering itself. And I don't think it's a comfortable place as much. But you know, it is comfortable, but it's challenging. I feel yeah. like it's overwhelming. And I think mm. that's why there is so much life on Earth is that the afterlife is truly a plane you have to be ready for. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting to learn yourself because I think you get it all right at the end. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I like that. I can get behind some of that. There's a lot of, I think, similarities uh, in what you're talking about with with my faith in the sense that the afterlife, this portion of the afterlife you're talking about kind of before judgment is uh, I think a big part of, of our own spiritual self-discovery and coming to terms with where we are going to be happiest in the true afterlife, you know, in, in the heaven or in the, in the, in the existence beyond or after judgment. Um, Interesting. All right. Well, I like that. That's, that's pretty comforting. I think, uh, is the being that you, you kind of believe in all of us coming from, is that a perfect being? I believe for a moment it was. <laughs> and then the accident. And then no. Rooted in doubt or not understanding itself or what even birthed the beginning of it all. But I believe at one point it, like, I mean, we're born perfect. Like, we're, but babies, like, I mean, we're, like, we're untouched by the material world. You yeah. know, a lot of people want to say you're born as a sinner and you have to, like, right. work to prove right. or solve that sin. That well, especially this idea, I, yeah, I mean, like, so you were raised with this original sin idea, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and so for people who don't quite understand what that is, can you explain 
what is this idea of original sin? So it's, it goes all the way back to Eden. It's saying like, okay, so we're at the beginning of life. You got a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and they eat the fruit from the tree and God gave them everything that they could ever need inside mm -hmm. of this beautiful paradise. And they went against it and his word. And because of that, we're, we're damned to live this burdensome life on this planet without Eden. But then he mm -hmm. gives us his son and sacrifices his son in the name of that sin, freeing us all from that original sin. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, so he, he, and there's like layers to it too, because Adam and Eve's son then like carries that sin to an extra level when they're living out of Eden by killing his brother Abel. So there's yeah. like, it's like, that's more real in terms of the original sin than like getting all the knowledge from the tree of life to me. Yeah. So my my understanding of of Catholicism's teachings on kind of original sin is that it's also tied to this idea that Adam and Eve, the taking of the fruit was more of a euphemism for them having sex. Is that true or is that false? I we never discussed. I don't remember that. Okay, interesting. Yeah, for us it was always an actual substance that they took that they ate or yeah. something. Got and it. it was always depicted in our like books as an apple. Right, right. Because I've grown up, it's changed. Like I, my brother, I think at one point said to me, "It's oh, it's a pomegranate." It's in like some. It's now we got like people going on their podcast and being like, "No, it's the uh, Amita mascara mushroom." Right, it's shrooms or it's weed or who knows what it was they took. I don't think it's any of those things. I think it's just parents not wanting their kids to disobey them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Do what I say. I've been here longer than you. Right, right. I don't quite understand exactly the... I, I do believe the fruit is something symbolic, but I don't know what the symbol it is representing is, if that makes sense. Maybe it is an apple, and maybe it's just nutrients that it represents. I mean, maybe. maybe. humans need more vitamin C, and <laughs> that's right. all it is. It's like, yo, Man, that, how crazy would that be if it were that simple? Healthier, it can treat your body better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Yeah, I agree. I think kids are born, I guess the way I would phrase it is kids are born pure. Because there are some kids that have, you know, like de physical defects or something that I guess arguably, okay, they're not perfect. But I think what you're really saying, like we agree, right, that they are pure in the sense that they are, they are holy, they are wonderful, you know, it's not an unholy thing to be brought into this world. So as a man of faith, like, can I ask, like, uh did your faith ever waver when your children were born or when you found out that there was going to be hurdles in their care? Ah, so, uh, no, no. My faith, uh, certainly not with, with childbirth. All three of our kids, um, like the birthing experience is, is a miraculous one, I think. Um, there were four live childbirths and there's there, it was the coolest i mean dude life coming yeah. into the world man 
Yeah, it is. It is crazy. And the ability that women have to bring that life into this world is also a miracle. Um, yeah, no. So my, my faith was never really shaken, even though my kids have, you know, two of them have this, this bleeding disorder. Luckily for us, it is not that serious of a bleeding disorder. Uh, at least I guess the way I'll phrase it is they don't have a very serious case of the bleeding disorder. So we've been very fortunate that way. Um, but yeah, no, I've never, I mean, even just in kind of day-to-day -day living, my faith has, has not really been, uh, I guess, shaken. Like I've never gotten to a place where I have questioned my faith. I certainly question myself. I question uh, my standing with God but I've never questioned whether or not what I believe is real, if that makes sense. So you have a very strong foundation. Yeah. And I really do feel like that is one of my gifts. It is just something that I've not dealt with yet. I'm, I may very well may face that in the future. I just have not faced it yet. I've talked to a well, lot of friends from college and high school who absolutely have face those kinds of questions yeah you said you question your standing with god so that's do you uh it, does that open communication with your god uh what is what is that like do you is it yeah let's go let's go to like the second what's the deal what's the deal with mormons for david centifanti so yeah, what's the so you What's the deal with Mormons? <laughs> yeah, there you go. What's the deal with Mormons? So are you asking, uh, like, how does prayer work for us? Well, like, is it just communication? Like, because for me, it's just, I, like, we used to sit and cross our hands and kneel. And now for me, it's, it, like, if you saw it, I feel like it would probably look a little bit like insanity. Uh -huh. it, 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 it's brief moments throughout the day where yeah. I'll look, it, it's kind of like JD and scrubs. I'll look up to the right and be like, so this is what. <laughs> is this for real? Yeah. Uh, I, I'll say, I'll say this in my faith, there is kind of a taught form. You know, we have the classic fold your arms, bow your head, close your eyes. Uh, so anytime we pray in meetings, that's, that's the way we'll do it. Uh, but we're also taught to, you know, carry a prayer in your heart. You should always be talking, conversing, thinking about, uh, you know, kind of making decisions with God in mind, you know, which can be taken to the absurd. You know, it's not like you have to go to the grocery store and be like, ah, oh, do I want Kroger's beans or do I want, you know, nature select? And I don't think, I don't think God cares about that. So uh, I think it's more of, yeah, I hope not. He might have a favorite brand. I don't know. Uh, but I think the important thing is these, you know, the life changing decisions, you know, like, do I want to keep working as a nurse or do I want to go into stand up? Like for me, do I want to keep working as a lawyer? Do I want to get into stand up? Those are questions that uh, certainly, you know, we take to, to Heavenly Father. We're encouraged to kind of come to a decision on our own and then essentially ask for, you know, here's what I'm doing. Tell me if this is wrong. Show me, show me if this is wrong. 
but I'm going to keep. Do you pray out loud know. like that, or do you pray internal? Both. We'll do. We'll do both. Uh, I mean, I, there have been many times when I've been alone and prayed vocally, and uh, more often than not, if I'm alone, I'm just going to silently pray. Um, but uh, but yeah yeah we'll we'll pray in families. You know, my wife and I will say prayers together. Uh, my kids and my you know, my wife and I will all say prayers together and then we're encouraged to have personal prayer too. So the personal stuff tends to be more interior. If you want to think about it as like a meditation, sure. Um, but it's, it's focused, you know, and, and the form of it is, you know, we, we address our heavenly father, say dear heavenly father, then we say what we're going to say. And then we close in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we don't have very many, we don't have very many written, like memorized prayers in Mormonism. So your Jesus was crucified too, right? Yeah. Yeah. We believe in the same Christ, the same Jesus that was crucified, resurrected. Yeah. How how much do you guys concentrate on that in your teachings? Uh, I mean, I'd say 98%. Okay. So it is a big part of it all. Oh yeah. Huge, huge. The full name. That's probably my biggest, uh, thing I did not like with Catholicism as I got older is that I thought we were sort of glorifying his last moments instead of mm. concentrating on his living. It was uh, all about, interesting. I mean, I get hearing the cross and it's like, you know, what it translates to in our, but I just thought like, do we have to have this visual of him bleeding? <laughs> right. Like why right. can't our structures or like our statues of him be like, washing the feet yeah sure sure why is that not our statue we worship why do we worship the death is that right right well and then you deal with the protestants who have the empty cross you know to symbolize his resurrection uh what in, the, in what's the big symbol like what's at the altar in mormon churches or what is it a church still yeah yeah so we'll go you know in pre-COVID times, we would go to a building, an actual church building. Uh, there is none, actually. There's no empty cross. There's no uh, symbols of, of Christ on the cross. Um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty blank slate as far as the, you know, the pulpit uh, and the rostrum so goes. are more like Muslims. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like no imagery, I think is important. Right. Imagery, imagery is important. Yeah, we just don't have it. Catholicism is they just like show you all this negative imagery. It's like how you develop your own perception of what you read. Yeah, well, and you know, there's also been a very evolved relationship between man and God. You know, a lot of the early Catholic churches were made to be incredibly beautiful, incredibly big, and. ornate you know to kind of show here's a distance between you and and the holy right um and uh and mormonism uh as far as when it was organized in in america in 1830 came in at a time of protestant you know revolution essentially right a revitalization of of the closeness of man and god so our churches are pretty simple our temples are fancier, um, but the churches are pretty simple. Yeah. We have paintings, you know, throughout the building, uh, but none that are like gory. Catholic churches get kind of gory, 
and we don't we don't have many of those we'll have one there's typically a painting of christ either in the garden suffering or on the cross because that is a you know that's a big part of why we worship jesus christ most of the paintings though are of him performing miracles being with the apostles you know, visiting uh, Mary outside of his tomb after being resurrected. That's most of our paintings in the church. Great. Yeah. Yeah, so we try to focus on... close relationship with James. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the full name of our church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Mormonism is a nickname given to us because of the Book of Mormon, that uh, over the years we've tried to kind of rebrand as, as we're okay with. Uh, and then every so often our prophet will be like, Hey, we need to remind the world we are Christian because they don't, they don't know that with Mormon as the name. So is there a living prophet right now? Yes, there is. Russell M. Nelson is his name. And how is, so, how did he come to be a living prophet? So we uh, have what we believe is the same organization that Christ established in the New Testament. So we have a first presidency uh, similar to a Peter, James, and John, and then we have 12 apostles. And then we also believe in, we, we have quorums of the 70, which are essentially traveling missionaries full-time until they retire, you know, essentially until they die or they're called to a different calling in the church that go around teaching about, about uh, Christ. The missionaries that most people hear about with my faith are the you know, two-year missionaries, the young men, the young women who go out, and, and that's a temporary calling. It's a calling for two years. Uh, but yeah, so Russell M. Nelson, Henry B. Eyring, and Dallin A. Chokes are our three Peter, James, and John today. The way they're, they become apostles is they're called. It's a calling that comes from the kind of top down. So when Joseph Smith uh, organized the church in 1830, he was uh, elected prophet. I mean, he was essentially called to be, he was really called to be a prophet by God. Uh, And then as the church grew, he called 12 apostles uh, who then confirmed him as prophet. Uh, and that's, that's the way that it's done now. So those callings have kind of been handed down, you know, uh, to other individuals within the faith. Is and it by God or by who is exemplified? No, it's just, it's by calling. I mean, we believe it's in, it's by revelation. Uh, a lot of people would just outside of the faith would say, well, it's just who they know and who they like, and maybe so. Uh, but we believe that there's revelation that goes into that. So it is a calling, right? What do you mean by revelation? Uh, Communication with God. So essentially that God still runs the church today, right? So, so really we believe Christ is at the head of the church, you know, and uh, that he with God are calling individuals to lead us in this life on earth. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the way that that's done, we believe, is through the the men who lead the church now. So if or when one of the apostles or if if the president typically what happens is the president 
uh, or the prophet of the church passes away. The uh, first presidency is kind of is dissolved. The 14 who are left meet together. They then call by revelation, a new prophet, uh, essentially meaning, you know, Christ is calling a new prophet to lead his church that is then approved of by this group of 14. And that prophet then chooses his two counselors to make the first presidency. And that leaves one opening in the quorum of the 12 and the quorum of the 12 meet together with the first presidency and the prophet calls a new member to the quorum of the 12 who's then confirmed by that group of 14. And then every, uh, every six months we meet as a church and every year we meet as a church over, you know, essentially over social media now like YouTube or um, uh, streaming services to meet together worldwide. And during one of those meetings, it's usually in October. There's a weekend in October, first weekend in October, first weekend in April where we meet together and uh, kind of like a little mini conference. We call it general conference. Um, I only said mini conference because in the academic world, the conference is like a week and we take two days. And one of those meetings in October is to confirm as a church, we sustain those who have been called. So, so you, can, sort of, you can get essentially like, you can be a prophet, but then it can go away? Uh, typically, when you're called as a quorum of the 12 or the uh, first presidency, you're in those callings until you die. Okay. Yeah. Or are deemed, you know, like you're just, you, you know, if you suffer from severe dementia, we're not going to, you're not going to continue as a prophet, you know, you'll you'll be replaced but but essentially it's to have death you ever, yeah have you ever felt um like the calling or god talking to you in that sense uh i i'll say yes and no i we are my faith believes very strongly in personal revelation personal contact with god uh but i don't i've never felt any sort of like you should give this direction to your whole church no i've never felt that so we believe that our prophet has essentially the authority to hear and receive revelation for the whole church. And that uh, I guess there might be some things that like, I would think, Hey, it might be interesting if our church tried this, I don't count that really as revelation that the whole church needs to hear um, because that's not really my role. So, but I definitely feel, you know, God's direction in my life. I feel uh, I don't know that I can't say I've ever heard his voice, but I have definitely felt his direction, which, which we believe comes through the, the Holy Spirit. So do you, um, so historically, how many, uh, so it's been since 1830. Yeah. Like how in the modern day and age, like, with so many people leaning towards science and moving forward and a lot of people stepping away from believing in these like religious institutions, like how, how have you found 
your grounding and with your community and your family, like with all this, this new, this new, new, like all this new information that it, I don't think it challenges religion as much as it, it's almost like religion was, religions were scientific without the understanding they were scientific. And that's just yeah. my belief. But how have you found it? Like, I mean, it's, it's wild. You're part of one of the youngest and largest, like largest and youngest put together. Like, right. I, I think, you know, and, and the true, I guess to be fair to your characterization, the way that I really think about my faith is it started with Adam and Eve. I feel like everybody in the Bible that followed God and Jesus Christ, like they were all Mormon, you know, like they, right, right, right. So we, you know, we recognize that Judaism is really where this faith started, right? Um, we believe that the New Testament, Christ is so important because of his atonement and, uh, you know, solidifying kind of this plan that God has for us. But the other thing Christ did was shift the focus from these more Jewish laws, right? The Mosaic law to one of, you know, the higher law that's presented in the New Testament uh, with Christianity. So, so uh, I think Mormonism is more of a continuation or a merger of some of these, uh, I suppose, other kind of Christian faiths and Judaism. I think Mormonism is, is it's the best. It's the best one. It's the best of everything. Uh, <laughs> I, well, but, it makes sense that it, to rein it all in because with all the, the like Christianity has so many different splits. Yeah, it's, yeah. I give, I give, their Islam, their big split, you know, it's a big one. But yeah. you got to give them credit where credit is due is they didn't let it get completely out of control like Christianity did. But there's <laughs> right. just so many different ways to believe in the same thing. Yeah. And yet they, they almost look like I grew up with like Lutherans and Protestants on my bus. And there was this weird like, oh, you're not Protestant, you're Catholic. It's like, Yo, we all worship in the same Christ. Yeah, yeah, very odd. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, yeah. So, as far as your other, I think, uh, question, as you know, how do how do we make sense of science? I agree with you to extent that that religion was kind of the first science, you know, without being formalized as a science. Um, I also don't think that religion and science are in conflict. I, the way I was raised is, yeah, evolution was for sure a thing. God used evolution to create Adam and Eve. That's, that's how Adam and Eve were created. Um, so I don't ascribe to a literal translation of the Bible. I don't think the earth has been around for only 7,000 years or, you know, 9,000 years or whatever it is at this point. Could you imagine getting to this point of perfection as a species in only 7,000 years? I mean... I mean, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> you know, we've been crazy in my lifetime. Like, I was more right. this, like the internet. Like, I'm looking at your face, and you're yeah. 100 miles away. Right, which is crazy. And uh, but, but I think science and religion try to explain the same coin. We're just looking at it kind of from two different sides. Okay. 
So it's almost so. like religion is the Big Bang and science is this is the formula to make the Big Bang happen. Right. We created right. a chemistry lab almost. Like there's a guy in sure. Earth yeah. carbon. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, as far as kind of the more well-known aspects of my faith, you know, our heaven, for, for those of us who achieve heaven or, you know, our version of exaltation, we're going to be creating planets. I think we're going to need to know some science in order to know how to do that. Wait, wait, say that again? So you think... So Mormon heaven, right? Man and woman together forever in eternity. That is kind of the exalt, that is the highest level of Mormon heaven right? That's the best of the best. You're married with your spouse and you both exist forever. Just centuries and centuries of forever. Getting to be okay. with your cosmic lover. Right. And you are creating and recreating what God has created for us. So we believe in God and Heavenly Mother have created spiritual kids and then they created an earth where they needed to put us so that we could become just like them. So that's our cycle. So in the afterlife, you create another world using- You got it. You got it, baby. Habits. That's wild. So this is like, life is just reading the manual and getting the- That's blue. it. And yeah, that's it. We're here to figure out ourselves, how to be better people, and then be a model and example for those who will then follow. I like that a lot. Yeah. That's really interesting. Because then, yeah, that would make, well, that, oh, that's so fascinating. Because then, like, whoever is our God that created us, like, we're, you and I are from it, like, yeah. together. Right. So, when that, we so we're all a family. Go to our own universe, we're going to be creating a whole other Yep, whole world. other thing. Right. Oh, dude, so I people really talk about, you know, scientists say the universe is expanding all of the time. It's expanding very quickly. And for me, it's like, of course it is because we're creating, you know, others are creating it. We're, that's how it's, that's why it's expanding. I mean, it makes so much sense to me because I mean, in my head, I'm always telling myself that like the thoughts I have are, you have to have positive thoughts to your body. And mm -hmm. communicate positive thoughts to your body because the inside of you, like the cells that are making sure things function, I almost look at them as little universes. Sure. And yeah. I'm I mean, that's, and I'm that's the men in black, right? And yeah. My heart and my lungs and my hips and my knees and just keep flowing positive universes through my blood. Right. Oh, interesting. Die, like that, the fact that it could expand outward and like, I, I really, that imagery. Yeah. Time. Yeah, that's very interesting. Huh. So is So yeah, is there you go. Is Earth a uh are we the first cell in this universe or are we the last cell or are we inside of a womb? I mean, I, I don't right, I don't know. Uh our belief is that we are somewhere, right? It's somewhere in the in the in the course of time. There's the question is how deep do the turtles go, right? When was the true beginning? So if, if earth was not the true beginning, which I don't know that it was, uh, when was the true beginning? You know, how many gods have come before our God essentially? 
Yeah. And this yeah, is are yeah, we, and then, are we in our stages of understanding. Right, right. Yeah. I mean the next plateau of how many times has the matrix been reset, right? All of these questions. So I heard in a podcast the line that technology is our evolutionary descendant. Uh-huh. And that really like gave me chills. Because <laughs> what everything we're talking about is on the basis that you leave this plane. Mm-hmm. And that's why it makes sense that it would be like a manual that you like learn as much as you can from to help build your next existence or whatever you get to be God of in that sense. But yeah, it's like to think that like one day there'll be, maybe not, but a silicone being that has consciousness that doesn't die as long as it's upgraded and continues to progress. Like it's right. true fascinating to think that we're, if we're given this like permanence that way we die, but yeah. we're guaranteed that. And we're living in the moment where we're figuring out how to, or maybe not even figuring it out, but we're at least trying to figure out, yeah. but can we install consciousness in a material that doesn't decay mm-hmm. because of the inevitable entropy of like life that is on earth. Right. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So cool. I have no idea that. So, so is there a hell? There is. Yeah. Yeah, there is. We talk about hell kind of colloquially and then, so immediately after we die, we believe that we go into kind of two states of being one of two states of being we're either in a more, uh, you know, a, a happier state of being, which we call spirit paradise, or we go to a less happy state of being, which is a spirit prison. Typically that's separated by baptism which is why we do baptisms for the dead in our temples, which is a a living ordinance, but in proxy for someone who's already passed away. Uh, Giving them the choice to accept that ordinance, moving their state of being from a a prison to a paradise. So Um, that right there, can I... So yeah. have you, I don't know, you, you're, you're the clean, clean cut guy and I, I, I've done DMT. In my, okay. And there was one DMT trip I had that I would literally label it as a soul prison. Interesting. Where there was this conscious like communication happening with myself and a lot of it was my living doubts mm. and they were consuming me where literally like when I was accepting of it, whatever it is, the that part of the brain, it felt like a beautiful paradise. It was Hmm. flowing colors as far as I can see several different dimensions. But right when I started to question it, like, Oh, how long am I going to be here? Or do I, do I, am I worthy? Or am I, I'm comparing it to someone else's DMT trip. When I immediately had those conscious negative thoughts, it mm. all disfragmented. All the yeah. shapes that were symmetrical became non-symmetrical and all the mm. colors washed away. And mm. it felt like a purgatory or like a soul prison where it was like I wasn't comfortably accepting it. Yeah. 
and not accepting myself and therefore it put me into this place that wasn't I, I don't want to label it negative but it was lack of energy it was hmm. a lack of like well if you're not going to accept me i'm not going to accept you oh that's so interesting um yeah so uh let's see i'm trying to remember now what your question was so we started talking about spirit paradise spirit prison hell um Oh, hell. Yeah. So sometimes we'll talk about hell and this idea of spirit prison. Okay. Where you're essentially trapped from progressing or damned because you have not yet been baptized either while you were alive or after you've died. Right. Um, the other way we talk about hell, kind of the more traditional, you know, hell, hell, terrible place forever, forever is something we refer to as outer darkness, which is, I mean, if you were to make these geographic areas, outer darkness, we believe is uh, small. They're not going to be, or population density, you know, population, small, small population compared to the rest of Heavenly Fathers and Heavenly Mother's children. Are you there the people, for And you're there for eternity. Yes. And the reason, the only way you really get there, there were two ways. One, in, in my faith, there was a pre-mortal existence where we lived with Heavenly Father, Heavenly Mother, and they explained to us, here's everything that's going to happen, okay? You're going to go to earth, and you're going to make mistakes, and we're going to send Jesus down, a Savior down, and he's going to do X, Y, and Z, and, and you can then use him to repent and come back to us, okay? So that's our plan, Right we believe that there was a third of all of heavenly fathers and heavenly mothers, children who said that plan sucks and we're not doing it. And we're going to follow Lucifer. Lucifer presents this plan, this idea of saying, Hey, we're going to make everybody go down. We're going to make everybody make the right choices. That way everybody can come back to live with heavenly father and heavenly mother. So because he chose not to follow the plan presented by heavenly father and uh, tried to get others to deny that plan, he's going to outer darkness. Those who followed him before this life, because they had all the perfect information and still chose not to follow Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother's plan, they're going to outer darkness with him. Those of us who are in this life, the only way we really get there is if we have a perfect knowledge of Jesus Christ and his atonement, and the reality of it, we deny it, and we try to get other people to deny it, then we might end up going to outer darkness. Yeah, which is not a very great place. No, I mean, I because uh, it doesn't sound like you get to create your own world there. No, you're not going to be creating your own world there. No, Lucifer no. There? And like, Lucifer is there. You get to there. talk to the other band, at least? I mean, I think there's, I, I, from, and this is just me, there, we don't know that much as a faith, like as faithful teachings, you know, our gospel uh, or our scripture doesn't talk hardly at all about outer darkness other than the weeping, the wailing, the gnashing of teeth, right? It's just a not good place. Um, we know a lot more about what we call the celestial kingdom, this highest area of heaven, uh, than we do about really any other place. So clearly 
you know, we take that as that's our goal. That's where we want to be. Therefore, we know the most about it. So is all the information about heaven from Joseph or is it from uh, people going and coming back like near death experiences? Oh, no. So I don't think we have much uh, as far as confirming, you know, we don't put stock necessarily in near death experiences as true spiritual experiences, not to discredit them or discount them. We don't have those kinds of experiences in our, in you guys our should get on it because that near death experiences have made Christianity a ton of money. <laughs> I mean, they certainly have, they certainly have, but you know, we're not in it for the money, David, we've already got a hundred billion. God is actually up there or something. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I feel like the issue with, with any of those things is, is you can, you can explain those away with science and you can explain them with some, you know what I mean? Like, that's why miracle, I, too. I use the right. group to try to like understand what you were explaining is like death and like, hell. right. I, right. I don't, I want to clarify. I don't think that EMT is access to a spiritual world. <laughs> I think that fair. people that that's say that fair. they're talking to God, right. All their ego and right. I think the really intense uh, dream state we have that can help us understand our existence better. I don't think it's actually us talking to anything divine. Yeah, well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate. I appreciate. All my listeners appreciate that clarification. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, buddy. Any other questions? Are you ready to plug your stuff? What's the uh, What's the seagull? Seagull, the Utah State bird. Isn't there? Uh, isn't the seagull a holy creature from the Mormon Church? <sighs> so it's not really a holy creature. Uh, we don't really believe in like holy creatures necessarily. Um, what happened with the seagulls? The reason the seagull is the Utah State bird is because when the pioneers arrived in Utah, claimed their land their first or one of their early crop seasons was heavily threatened by crickets. Crickets came in and we're going to eat like all like farmers were like, we are going to die because all of these crickets are going to destroy our crops. So the church essentially met together, prayed, fasted and of seagulls. I mean, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of seagulls, flew over Utah and ate the crickets, thereby saving all of the crops and saving the Mormon pioneers. So that's why the seagull is the state bird. That's enough reasoning. Yeah, I think so. That's cool. So, yeah. Well, savior is there for a locust. Uh... Exactly, exactly. But, you know, we, yeah. So we don't really believe in holy animals. There are symbols, you know, animals are used as symbols a lot. But we don't really, uh, you know, deify animals or or anything like that. So, how about uh, the musical, real quick? I, I know you want to. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The musical, Book of Mormon musical. Uh, were you angry at first? Like when? No. South Park, like, did you? That no. South Park episode is pretty big too. Yeah, I mean, on my mission, I served in some, uh, I, I was in Canada, Eastern Canada, and, and some college towns in Eastern Canada. And the only reason anybody in our age group even knew about us at all was because of South Park. Uh, so did so I actually... Did it make it more difficult to... 
it actually made it a lot easier to talk to them, you know, because it's not like Matt Stone and Trey Parker. Um, first of all, they're pretty accurate in what they portray. They do it in a comedic way, which I truly appreciate, but they're, they're quite accurate. And uh, there are things in that South Park episode that I think caught a lot of members of the church, if they ever saw it, would caught, catch them off guard a little bit. And it's I've never felt like my church has hidden the way that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, but some do. Some, I guess, have felt that, they, that you know, their, their youth leaders or, you know, whoever was teaching them in church was, was kind of hiding the ball on that. I never experienced that. Um, but I, I felt like it made it more helpful. The musical I have not seen, I've heard some music. And from what I've... I haven't seen it either. Yeah, I mean, from what I've heard, it sounds sort of accurate, right? <laughs> nice. Broadway side. Broadway, Broadway baby. Downtown Lake Orion. Wow, place. good for you. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they Matt Stone and Trey Parker, I think, deal with kind of all religions in a similar way in the sense that they kind of, my sense is they view Mormons in particular as being very sweet, quaint people that don't try to bother everybody else. I've never had, like, especially, like, in terms of, like, the religious questions, like, we had a Mormon girl in my musical theater program in high mm. school, and I remember the first time I asked her about, like, the whole, like, oh, you guys have multiple wives? She didn't yeah. get offended. She was just like, yeah. let me explain it to you. And that's why that was one of my questions, because she was, right. she explained it to me, and it was actually like, oh, well, that just sounds like a community having a community back and it's like funny how people can take something and spin it yeah 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 now i think we try generally i mean obviously every group has has people that are less good you know what i mean like less you think it's because you guys are so nice why people come after you like matt stone and trey parker because it's like (sighs) ah they're the good baby I mean, you know, truly, I think, I think Mormonism is one of the true American religions, Absolutely. you know? So I think that's more why people come after Mormonism is because it started in 1830 in America. And even we believe it's, it had to start in America. There was no other country that would have allowed it to even grow, you know? Um, and so yeah, I mean, as far as our faith goes, we believe we're pretty tied to American history in that way, which, you know, if that's why people come after us. That's great. I'm fine with that. Uh, and yeah, you know, I think our church does a pretty good job of taking, you know, shots in stride. Uh, the church took out an ad in the Book of Mormon musical playbill that said that the book is so better. When yeah. I heard that, I was like, dude, that's like, <laughs> it's good for your community too. Like if I yeah. was... I was a young teenager and my church did that, I would be like, that's, that's the confidence in yeah. our faith. That's what yeah. separates. Yeah. And Which I think is great. You know, we were not in the media positively very much in my teen years. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't know. If very recall, tough. I don't know if you remember uh, the Catholic church <laughs> and all the things they did. I do. I, I do know. have a, you know, <laughs> I think all that being said, you know, Mormonism has also its issues with some of the social issues going on. You know, I know for members of the faith in California, it was very difficult 
when when gay marriage was on the ballot in California. And really, yeah, 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 yeah. Because members out here uh, in California were essentially organized to politically campaign uh, against gay marriage. How are they which, doing with it now? Is it like I mean, the, are they learning to come around so they don't lose? I think the church, that, and this is, you know, I think this is going to be a, a challenge for the church going forward. I think there are some issues that are social and religious. And the issue with, with gay marriage for my faith is that it skirts both of those. So we, we love, you know, like I, I have a gay cousin. I don't hate him. I don't think he's an evil person uh, in the same way. You know, I, I guess I view his life activities the same way I would most of the people I hang out with every day, you know, comics, like people who are smoking, drinking, sleeping around, like that's not great either, but do I think they're evil? No, I don't think they're evil. Um, I view that all kind of the same way, you know? That's great. It's like, not the, like you live, you live in very much a life of Christ and then like not letting, like let, let the, I would say let the prophets and let the leaders worry about that. Because really, like, I guess the biggest fear, or at least what would make me think, like, if I was a leader of an organization that wanted to keep expanding the love, well, like, it's the one downside. I don't even say it's a downside, but it's, like, one of the blaring truths of being gay or being lesbian is, like, you can't reproduce, but you can adopt, which is a great way to bring other people into your religion. Um, but it's, it makes sense that that structurally would be a belief at the beginning of all religions. Is that yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know. It's an amazing thing already. So it's right. experience that. Right. Well, and see, like I talked to you about, you know, we're all brothers and sisters. I believe that wholeheartedly. Uh, there's also a very important aspect of gender and sexuality because our highest level of heaven is creating spiritual babies. And the way that we understand that's done in this life is heterosexually. So that's why, you know, theologically, we believe in a man and woman. Maybe, maybe there's something different. Heaven was, you're there with your wife. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that part. So you're not alone in creating this universe. Right, right, right. It's only done, it's only done in a partnership. Interesting. Yeah. And, and we believe that partnership has to be heterosexual. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to get sorted out, but I feel like it's our faith. You know, there's, there's kind of this theological side of saying, hey, you know, this is the way we believe things will be. Uh, but then there's the practical side of saying we have to love everybody and treat people with respect. But that also doesn't really mean we have to accept what you're doing. We can disagree and still love you. And that might not yeah, feel very good, hopefully, but hopefully our generation grows with getting more critically thinking like that. That's right yeah, is, that's what I hope. It's the biggest thing is like you don't have to. Yeah, it's oh, it's so frustrating because yeah, you let someone be and have different beliefs completely. <laughs> right. It's, right, which so I think social control right now. Yeah, and I think that's what's interesting for comics is that we're sort of like, we want people to 
disagree and agree with us all in one set, all while we're up on stage. We want them to disagree with us and then kind of come more to our side, but they have to, you know, and that's where we hope we get laughs while we do that. Right. But you only get laughs if you're, if you have disagreement and agreement all in the same set. Yes. So this is one of the early things I learned in, uh, in high school in English class. I got my first time I took it, I got an 8% in the class. Uh-huh. And they, uh, they put me back with that same teacher. I was like, no, no, I need a new teacher. So they put me with this different lady and everything she communicated stuff and we ended up getting a 94% in that class. I yeah. move on to the next grade, but um, refuting, refuting your argument. Yeah. Always stuck with me. And in stand-up yeah. comedy, it's huge. If you can give people your perspective, but also come with it from the other perspective and use that to strengthen your argument and your beliefs, because right. you're respecting them. You're respecting yep. the other side of the altar. But then yeah. you're also coming back to what you said. And it just, it's a lot of people, uh, it's, I don't know if it's LA, because it, it, in Michigan, I would say where I grew up, everybody refutes themselves before they believe in themselves. Hmm. They doubt themselves first. Where here, it's like everyone believes themselves and they don't, <laughs> yeah. they don't doubt themselves realistically. Yeah, interesting. Well, someone else might think or feel or believe this. And it's like, I don't know. I'm very lucky to have that repute voice in my head. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Man, I I could talk to you for forever, David, but we're going to have to wrap up, bud. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, man. Anything, Anything you got going on? Any Zoom shows? Any underground live shows? You feel safe advertising? What do you got going on? I can't stand Zoom comedy, man. I, just, <laughs> I, uh, I got nothing to plug with Zoom. I think I yeah. was on I didn't try to log on for it. Uh, it makes sense for podcasting. So, I think so. Uh, I mean, there's underground shows. Nothing. I've just been doing those bikes in the park. Yeah. In uh, people's backyards. You know? Yeah, good, man. Good. Where can people find you? And then I'll put your handle in the show notes too. So it's easy. Um, Instagram. I'm D underscore Sentafanti. And uh, Twitter, which I, I post a lot on Twitter. I unfortunately oh, don't right? following, but I got some good, I, I don't get too political. I kind of just yeah. share like silly little quips that come to my mind. Yeah. And, um, okay. So Instagram, uh, Twitter is the T-H-E-E underscore Funyun. The Funyun. Violet. I love it. I love it. David, it's been a pleasure, bud. Thank you so it much for joining so me. to see your face and hear your voice, man. This you is, too, uh, man. You too. I missed our times at Sal's. I missed our times at, at various mics in the LA scene. Hopefully this can all come back in the very near future. Yeah, same, dude. I was... Uh, I was, I think it was the week of COVID started. I was coming up to Burbank to see your show. Oh yeah. 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 And then it was going to, right. And I was going to have you on it the following week or the following month. And then well, we'll get you on there. It'll come back. It'll come back with a vengeance. It'll be good to see you, man. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again, David. Lake in Vegas. Do your Thank thing. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate that. And I hope you have a great week.
Thanks for being in touch. Okay. Bye.